Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal, whether accessing our free services in person or at one of our 175 locations online or over our toll-free helpline, you are getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and, uh, and more. In preparing for the show today, I came across uh, a quote attributed to the late Gilda Radner that I think puts today's conversation in context. The quote is, life is about not knowing having to change, taking the moment and making the best of it without knowing what's going to happen next. So I want to jump in and address the elephant in the room, the spread of the coronavirus or otherwise known as COVID-19. There's no doubt about it. We're traveling through some uncharted territory. I'm hearing from colleagues within CSC and from other organizations that many patients and caregivers are feeling isolated and they're feeling fearful. For the future, um, calls for social distancing, travel restrictions, lockdowns may separate us physically, but we can still connect and support each other. No one should feel alone. At CSC, we believe that community is stronger than cancer. And in this time of uncertainty, we also believe that community is stronger than the coronavirus. I know our listeners have a lot of questions about the spread of the virus in general and its impact on the lives of people living with cancer specifically. That's why I invited you, our listeners, to send us your questions and concerns for this episode. I wish I could promise you that we'll get to all of them. Uh, many, many questions came in, but we'll address as many of them as we can. And I'm really grateful to have with us today three incredible guests who will share their wealth of knowledge and insights to help us better understand this new virus and cope with the changes in our lives that its spread has caused. I'll start with brief introductions because I know everyone is um, anxious to jump in and start the conversation. But I also want to add, and this is important, uh, this information is not intended as medical advice for you or your family. And as always, we really encourage you to consult your physician, your healthcare team with medical questions that you have about your care. So with that, I want to start with introducing Dr. Mary Jennifer Markham. Uh, Dr. Markham is Associate Professor and Interim Chief of the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the University of Florida. She is Associate Director for Medical Affairs for the University of Florida Healthcare Center, and she is a medical oncologist specializing in gynecologic cancers. She's chair of the ASCO Cancer Communications Committee and is the social media editor for the Journal of Clinical Oncology and the Journal of National of the National Cancer Institute. Welcome to the show, Dr. Markham. Thank you so much for having me. We also have with us Dr. Mike Kaloja. He is Vice President and Chief Innovation Officer at ADV Health. His prior experience includes working at Aetna as National Medical Director, Oncology Solutions, where he directed Aetna's oncology delivery reform pilots and was the architect of the Aetna Oncology Medical Home Program. He also served as Medical Director for Oncology Services for U.S. Oncology from 2007 to 2011. Dr. Kaloja is a fellow of the American College of Physicians. He has published and spoken extensively on payment reform, personalized medicine, and practice care delivery transformation in oncology. He is a good friend 
of the cancer support community. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Kolozhin. Thanks, Kim. Returning to the show is my good friend and colleague, Elizabeth Franklin. Elizabeth serves as the executive director of the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Policy Institute. She was formerly director of policy and engagement at the George Washington University Cancer Institute. Previously, she was senior director of policy and advocacy with the Prevent Cancer Foundation, as well as special assistant to the chief executive officer at the headquarters of the National Association of Social Workers. Elizabeth has her bachelor's, master's, and in a few weeks will earn her doctorate in social work and has been working um, in oncology social work for almost 15 years. Thanks for being here, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me, Kim. Um, I want to start with you, Dr. Markham, as we sort of jump into, um, uh, before we get specifically to our uh, questions that we received, I just want to go back to a little bit of science class, if you would help us. Um, and I, I probably failed those classes, so I particularly need to, <laughs> a little bit of updating, but um, in as simple terms as you can, as if you were teaching a middle school science class, can you explain to our listeners what exactly is the coronavirus and why has it set off this worldwide concern? Sure. So coronavirus is really a class of viruses, which means there are many different types. In fact, the common cold uh, is mostly from a coronavirus, certainly not this one. So this one, uh, which was initially named the novel coronavirus, because novel means new, was identified in uh, late 2019, maybe November or December. I think December was the first reported case. It was reported in China initially, and I think what um, I would want listeners to know about this particular coronavirus is that it's very similar to the coronavirus that caused the SARS outbreak several years ago. Uh, SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And yeah. this virus, because it looks similar, was actually called SARS-CoV-2. COV, and that stands for coronavirus 2. So this coronavirus is very similar to that SARS virus more than any other type of coronavirus. But it's really a, just a class of virus. It's a particular one that uh, has really um, made itself quite known in the community and is of great concern because of the way it has spread outward from China into Europe and now into the United States. And so just let me clarify, Dr. Markham, we hear on the news, obviously everyone's watching the news probably a little bit too much these days, um, but we hear um, coronavirus and then we hear COVID-19. Are those the same thing? They seem to be used interchangeably with the, with the media and in much of what we're reading. They often are. The way I think of it is that the, the novel coronavirus causes COVID-19. COVID-19 is really the disease that is caused by an infection with the novel coronavirus. I see. But if, he, if the media is saying one or the other, it's the same thing, obviously. These are I, would, I would think of it as the same thing. That's right. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, let's just keep going, Dr. Markham. What um, are the uh, symptoms of the coronavirus? So, you know, what would someone experience possibly? Sure. So the primary symptoms that are uh, likely to be experienced would be fever, cough, and maybe shortness of breath. I think some folks may have um, body aches and uh, fatigue uh, can be common. These are very similar to symptoms of influenza or maybe even symptoms of a, a common cold. Uh, usually there's not sneezing. Uh, sometimes it's hard to distinguish you know, allergies, but allergies typically are associated with sneezing and this is not. 
Um, there have been cases of people reporting um, diarrhea or nausea. And uh, I think the scary part for doctors is that, and for patients too, is that uh, there are cases where people are not necessarily symptomatic, may have just very mild symptoms or even no symptoms. Yes. Yes. And so I think that what some folks are really struggling with is how is the coronavirus different from the flu, different from a bad cold, different, you know, we're getting instructions about, well, if you wouldn't go to the doctor otherwise, if you just ride out a cold, then sort of stay home and ride it out. But what are there specific uh, factors that folks should be looking for? And, and, and do we know how this differs from the flu? You talked to, especially about some of the respiratory issues. Sure. So I think it's very difficult to tell uh, the seasonal flu apart from COVID-19, um, especially if you are a patient who's suffering with those symptoms. In fact, part of the workup for COVID-19 would include doing a respiratory panel to look for um, the seasonal influenza. So sometimes it's hard to tell. We, we do know the viruses differ. Coronavirus, as I mentioned, is really one of a broad category of, of um, viruses in that coronavirus class, but this is the particular virus causing COVID-19. Influenza could be a variety of different strains. Unlike where we have a vaccine for influenza, we don't yet have a vaccine for this. And that's really one of the key differences right now. Many people may have some immunity to various strains of influenza because they've been exposed before. But with mm -hmm. COVID-19, um, this is brand new. And so people don't have immunity already from COVID-19. And that's, that's a challenge and may explain why people are getting uh, quite sick sometimes with, with it. The other thing we know about right. influenza and COVID is they both are spread through droplets. So if I sneeze or cough um, or um, laugh even, I might could spread respiratory droplets from my nose or from my mouth and that could land either on someone if they're standing too close or on a surface. That could then yeah. be spread. We, we think the COVID, um, the novel coronavirus actually lasts probably a bit longer on surfaces and may linger a little while before manifesting with symptoms, unlike flu, which tends to happen um, mm -hmm. a little more quickly. There's also an Got issue it. with, mm -hmm, with um, severity of disease. So flu affects yeah. a lot of people, thousands of people worldwide every year. And there are many yeah. deaths from influenza every year. However, this um, death rate of COVID-19 does appear to be probably 10 times higher than that of seasonal influenza. 10 times higher. That's right. Right now we think wow. it's about 1%, whereas the death rate for seasonal flu is 0.1%. Now, of course, lots changing. So that may, the data may look different yeah. six months from now, but as sure. what we know today, it's 1%. Sure. And look, if we were having this conversation next week, it would probably be different than the conversation we're having today, right? <laughs> that's so that's it is very true. By the hour, by the day. Um, one more question, Dr. Markham, before I um, pivot to Dr. Uh, Kolodzie, and this is a question uh, we're st starting to jump into some of our uh, listener questions and, and uh, folks who are reaching out to us, but this is an interesting one. Um, if I am a cancer patient, this came in from one of our patients, if I'm a cancer patient, who do I call? If I get sick, do I call my oncologist or do I call my primary care provider? Or maybe do I call both? I'm not sure, but I thought that was an interesting question. 
Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's one that I have answered several times for my own patients. And I think the answer is, if you are undergoing active cancer treatment, it's really best to call your oncologist. So if you're Mm -hmm. in the middle Mm -hmm. of therapy or within probably the first year of your treatment, probably calling the oncologist makes sense. If you're beyond that time frame or in long-term follow-up and the cancer is no longer active, then I think calling the primary care physician is, is absolutely fine. Good. Well, that's good. Uh, that's good advice. And we, we do want to talk. We got a lot of questions about, you know, sort of being immunocompromised. So I want to dive into that a little bit. Um, Dr. Kolodze, many um, news reports have indicated that people who are immunocompromised, um, and it's a big SAT word, and again, another one I'm sure I got wrong back in school, but um, that these folks are at higher risk of contracting coronavirus. And we received many questions from cancer patients and caregivers about that. So let's start with the basics. Um, Let's start with telling our listeners, um, what does it mean to be immunocompromised, Dr. Kolodzie? Yeah, sure, Kim. You know, I think um, we need to um, uh, get rid of a little bit of the baggage that's associated when we hear the term immunocompromised. Because I think in our lifetimes, we have seen um, uh, patients who were immunocompromised who had very, very serious illness. The the one that comes to mind, for example, is HIV, which was a a, a significant uh, immunocompromised syndrome. Uh, but th- that's not what we're talking about here. Not at all. Okay. We need to get okay. rid. We need to get rid of that baggage. Just think of immunocompromise as as having an immune system that is not at one hundred percent, and that could be for any number of reasons. So, for example, we know unquestionably that normal aging is associated with some diminution of the efficiency of the immune system. That's why, for example, old people get shingles. We also know that patients with cancer, and specifically patients with cancer undergoing treatment, are, quote, immunocompromised. But that doesn't mean they're sitting on a time bomb. It means that they have immune systems that are not quite at 100%, and that makes them a little bit more susceptible to both getting the infection and having a more serious manifestation of it. And and it tells us that we are in... Uh, a somewhat higher risk category that we need to to pay attention to and take appropriate actions for. So, uh, so that's very helpful um, context to frame that out for us. And I, um, you know, one question that came in uh, from one of our patients is, um, what cancer drugs make you immunocompromised? But, but Dr. Kloja, I just want to I just want to ask because this came in from a couple folks as well. Is it the cancer? that makes you immunocompromised or is it the cancer treatment that makes you immunocompromised or is it both? It's both. It's all of the above. So for example, we, we, we do believe that patients with cancer have, you know, modest, uh, immuno and modest immunocompromised state, but for the most part on a day-to-day basis, it's of no significance whatsoever. We know, for example, that radiation alone, without associated systemic therapy or chemotherapy also causes modest, a modestly immunocompromised state, very modest for most patients that has no clinical significance. What drugs that we use in cancer? Um, The fairest answer is all drugs, but there's a gradation here, right? So on the one end, we've got drugs that are used in breast cancer routinely like tamoxifen, 
um, or one of the aromatase inhibitors, hormonal blocking agents, I would consider them to have essentially no effect on the immune system. And then in between are the drugs that cause a low white blood count, which every patient who's ever received chemotherapy is fixated on their white count because that is a rough indicator of their degree of immunocompromise. But it actually turns out now that there are a lot of drugs that we use, particularly in leukemia and lymphoma, that do affect the immune system. They don't make your blood count go down necessarily, but they do cause a form of immunocompromise. Is it profound? No, it's not. Now, there are patients that we take care of who do have significant immunocompromise, and they are best uh, exemplified by patients who've had bone marrow transplant. Those patients are particularly at risk here uh, and need uh, special attention, which should be directed by their transplant physician. Excellent. Great advice. I, I, I talked to a friend recently um, who had a, a uh, he, he uh, about a year and a half ago, had a bone marrow transplant. And he basically said, all these new rules are nothing new for me. These are all the things that my, you know, doctors have uh, told me to do since my transplant. And luckily they had that. They were well stocked with uh, hand sanitizer and masks and other things when this all uh, when this all came about. So um, it's really helpful to understand that. Um, Dr. Markham, we uh, received a question from a listener asking for more information, and let's keep with this theme of sort of cancer patients and their uh, and their heightened risk. And she was kind of sending us some statistics. I've read that cancer patients are 3.5 times more likely to get the virus. Um, you know, she sent us a bunch of statistics, which, you know, I don't want to cite because we don't have the sources of those. But again, what does this mean, she says, for people with varied circumstances, for example, by age, by sex, by cancer type, by stage, by point in their treatment? Um, we know it's a, she says, I know it's a small sample size, but I'm curious uh, about that. And I saw a report on the news today, and I thought it was interesting that said that uh, that, the, um, that the virus is, is uh, more severely affecting men worldwide uh, fairly significantly than um than women, and they were sort of trying to understand uh, that. But if you can just sort of get to the basics of the question and maybe follow on to some of the things that Mike said about, um, you know, what do these cancer patients need to be aware of? Yeah, so I think your listener's question is a really good one, and it likely stems from an article that came out in the Lancet Oncology out of China. So a, a group of yep. researchers in China uh, looked retrospectively, so they looked in hindsight at patients who had been diagnosed with uh, the novel coronavirus and looked at outcomes specifically in cancer patients. And it was a small st study, um, but it seemed to show that cancer patients or people who had a history of cancer were more likely to um, be diagnosed with COVID-19 and they were also more likely to have more significant uh, uh, manifestations of the disease, such as um, needing invasive ventilation, so needing oxygen, uh, needing mm -hmm. uh, intensive care unit admission. The caveat to this study is that in that large population that they looked at retrospectively, there were only 18 patients who had cancer. So it's mm -hmm. very, very mm -hmm. small. So unfortunately, we really don't know yet. I, I think that it is likely, based on what we know of how the disease impacts people who are uh, immune compromised or are older or have other medical um, illnesses that are chronic, probably there is some higher risk of complications from it. But I do think we're, we're really still learning. 
it's definitely tuned uh, too soon to say what um, different cancer types or stages or yeah. point in treatment this really impacts, but I, that's what we're mm -hmm. hoping to learn. I've been actually really excited yeah. because there's a lot of talk uh, in scientific communities trying to figure these things out and forming registries yeah. so that we can learn this information as soon as possible. Yeah, there is a, a lot to learn. Obviously, we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of um, increased knowledge on the other uh, on the other side of this, and we will get to the other side of this together. Um, That's right, Dr. Markham. Another question, and this is this is a this is a, a, a common question. This came in in a lot of different forms. Um, are former cancer patients who have concluded cancer treatment and are in remission, um, or maybe no evidence of disease, at greater risk if they contract? Um, COVID-19, and in other words, you know, past cancer, past treatment, is that considered an underlying condition? Are you at greater risk? And we have people who said, I finished treatment a month ago, I finished treatment a year ago, I finished treatment five years ago, and I think, you know, people are trying to assess their risk um, based on that. But what in general terms can we tell them? Yeah, so this is another one where we are learning as we go. I think that certainly people who are on cancer treatment actively are likely at higher risk. People who are living with cancer but have completed a part of their treatment, let's say, um, may be at higher risk because their cancer is so present and they're living with it. And, and an example of that yeah. would be a, a patient who might have metastatic breast cancer or metastatic colon cancer and, and is on a break from therapy. Um, yeah. The diagnosis of cancer in that setting may be enough to increase risk, but we're not quite sure. I think if a patient is cured of their disease and they don't have other risk factors and that's a key thing if they're not older than 70 let's say um, or have uh, diabetes or a heart condition um, then maybe their risk is not that much higher the hard part is it's really going to be very individualized advice at this point so it's always a great idea to you know, if there are questions or concerns and you're still under the care of an oncologist, definitely address it with your oncologist. Yep, yep, great, great. Um, Dr. Colorje, we received several questions, and this won't surprise you, asking if patients should go to their treatment appointments, cancer patients who are in active treatment and if they should, um, and, and what they can do to protect themselves. Let me read one of those to you. Um, it says, my daughter will be getting a dose of irradiated iodine to treat her um, post-thyroidectomy. How will this affect her immune system? Will this put her at greater risk of exposed to the virus? What extra precautions should she be um, should she be taking? Um, we are getting a ton, a ton of questions from folks who are in active treatment. Some of them, uh, you know, and we'll get to this a little bit. Folks are having some of their treatments um, postponed, delayed. Um, we know some folks are still going in. So how do we? address this um, inactive treatment mode, Dr. Kalosian. Yeah, this, Kim, this has got to be uh, the hardest single question that a yeah. patient um, is going to confront throughout this pandemic. Um, the truth of the matter is that uh, although we don't know the answer to this question, um, I think that we can use some common sense to arrive at an answer. And, and that common sense should be guided by something you and I talk about all the time, shared decision-making. Mm -hmm. Because what should happen in this circumstance is the patient should speak to their treating physician. And they yeah. need to review, on the one hand, 
the risks associated with delaying therapy. And on the other hand, the risks associated with receiving therapy. And, mm-hmm. and that needs to be weighed. So ASCO's done a real nice job, American Society of Clinical Oncology, putting out some information for physicians to guide them in this, uh, in, in this dialogue with the patient. But it should be driven by shared decision-making. It, it's, it's the opportunity to make sure that the patient really understands what they're getting them, themselves into uh, and, and make a decision that they're comfortable with um, that's truly informed. So let's just take this example. Yeah, so please. on the one hand, on the one hand, uh, radioactive iodine doesn't have a, a profound effect on the immune system. It can rarely lower the white blood count. That's for sure. Um, it doesn't have a lot of, of other immunosuppressing effects. Uh, on the other hand, though, on the other hand, though, most patients who received radioactive iodine after a thyroidectomy um, are receiving it, if you will, as an insurance policy. And delaying it for a little while is, is probably not going to affect the outcome. Of course, each individual case may have its nuances, but, but in general, waiting a month to get radioactive iodine probably isn't going to matter in much the same way that waiting a month to get your mammogram is probably not going to matter or waiting a month Mm -hmm. to get your colonoscopy is not going to matter. I think Mm -hmm. there's not data. There's not the data and there's not going to be data for a long time. It's It's a common sense thing, but it's a decision that ought to be made after a careful consideration between the physician and the patient. Would that patient be more compromised because She's had surgery rather than more than anything else. Is that is that something okay. that compromises the patient? Uh, yeah. Again, you know, I think um, if you look in the literature about um, whether or not people are immunosuppressed after the uh, are immunocompromised after they have surgery, um, you know, there's a little bit of evidence out there that the, at least some surgeries may increase um, uh, your risks. But honestly, not much. Not, not really. I don't think so. And Mike, what about radiation, which I know is often a daily treatment? Um, what, what can we say about radiation? Probably the same thing. You know, I think yeah. it, it probably does suppress the immune system a little bit. Depends a little bit on mm-hmm. what part of the body is being irradiated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we see a lot of patients with radiation who get into problems with infections, but but sometimes that's not so much a, a manifestation of the. Um, uh, of the immune suppressive effects of radiation, although there are some, uh, it's more a, a fact that uh, you know you get uh, uh, reactions in the tissues that are being irradiated, uh, like a sore throat. If you have head and neck cancer, getting radiation that may put you at more risk for infection because of that. So radiation's complicated because yeah. there is evidence, uh, especially if radiation is being used to cure a patient, that it's not good to interrupt the radiation without a really, really good reason. So I would say that for your listeners who are receiving radiation, this needs to be addressed specifically with the radiation oncologists. Mm -hmm. And I would Mm -hmm. say much like receiving curative chemotherapy for let's say breast cancer, early breast cancer. um, I think the uh, barring extenuating circumstances, most people would say that it's in your interest to proceed with therapy. Right, right. And I, I like your your framing of saying, look, this is about shared decision-making. You need to do that sort of cost-benefit analysis, so to speak, with your doctor in partnership with your doctor. And, and the doctor is going to take all of these other factors 
into account, right? What is your stage of disease? How old are you? What are your other underlying health conditions? Is that right, Mike? They're going to sort of do this Absolute, kind of whole assessment to help guide you. That's right, Kim. I, you know, I, I would say that understanding um, both the, you know, the biology of the disease and the risk and all that other stuff, but also what the patient's, you know, major fears are, what, you know, what their concerns are. Um, I, I can easily see a discussion going in either direction, depending uh, on the individual patient's needs and desires. Yeah. So let me keep going with another question while I have you, Mike. This uh, question about, um, you know, if I am going into treatment, what are some ways that I can protect myself, you know, myself? Um, you know, is there a way for me to get masks and hand sanitizer? You know, there's a run <laughs> on those items. They're not readily available. Do that. Would those things um, protect me? You know, maybe I can. Can I get them from my doctor? If not, what are some other things I can do to protect myself? Am I if I'm going to be going in for active treatment? Yeah. Well, so um, mm -hmm. go go ahead, Dr. Marco. I'm sorry. Okay. The most important thing that people can do is actually pretend as if they already have the virus. And so if you had the virus, you'd want to distance yourself and protect other people. Um, we all should be really following that guidance and staying home whenever possible. Clearly, when you have to go in for a treatment visit, you can't stay home, you must, must go in. Unfortunately, there's no data that masks actually help prevent getting the coronavirus. Um, hospitals really need the masks right now and really need the gloves mm -hmm. and all of the equipment that we call uh, personal protective equipment or PPE. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because of this run, there is um, and are likely to be more shortages for the healthcare team. So actually, I would dissuade listeners from trying to scramble to get masks. I would mm -hmm. want to reassure your listeners, though, that that at their medical care centers, whether it's a hospital system or a doctor's office, the, the care teams are really looking out for their patients right now. And so one thing that we are doing, for example, is if a patient comes to the office and has a fever, we're certainly putting a mask on that patient. Now that mm -hmm. mask doesn't help protect that patient, but it does help protect other patients. And so if you're in the waiting mm -hmm. room with a patient with a mask on, um, you know, maybe that patient is, is protecting you from getting what they have. I think using hand sanitizer is great if you can get your hands on it. Um, but really, there's nothing that beats old-fashioned soap and water and keeping a distance. Mm -hmm. And by distance, I mean about six feet. So if you can keep six feet away from people, um, that's ideal. A lot of the medical clinics right now are giving guidance on how to come into the building, let's say, and they're separating the chairs. So they're doing what they can do to help keep patients protected. Great, great, um, great advice. Uh, let's keep going, Dr. Closure. We touched on this a little bit, but uh, again, we got so many questions about sort of being immunocompromised, and I know you're helping us to level set um, on that, but um, questions keep coming in. The first, uh, another question, how long does it take for white blood cell levels to normalize um, after chemo? And then another question, if you're just starting your remission phase, should you consider yourself still immunocompromised? So I do think just, uh, Dr. Kaloja, since we're getting so many questions on this, I know we've touched on it a little bit, but let's keep going down that path, please. Yeah, so, so a couple of things. Number one is um, I, I know that when we do our chemo education classes, we harp on the white blood count. Um, we harp on the white blood count. 
uh, it's not just about the white blood count. The, the rate uh, of recovery of the white blood cell depends very much on what the specific chemotherapy treatment is. Um, it's very variable from patient to patient. Um, that's part of the story. But I think in terms of trying to understand your risk as the individual patient, um, I think a discussion with your oncologist about, you know, what is my risk? Um, do I t need to take any special um, precautions because of the therapy I have just completed or because of the therapy that I'm continuing on? Now, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, there's, a, there's a medication that is used very, very commonly in blood, dis uh, blood cancers called rituximab. Uh, it's clear that uh, that does cause some immune suppression. It's also equally clear um, that for many, many patients, that's of no real significance. However, I think uh, a patient who's receiving rituximab is somebody that I'd, I'd be a little bit worried about if I were taking care of them during, uh, during this COVID pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. Not that I would uh, uh, do anything more than what Dr. Markham has already suggested that we do, which I think is excellent advice for all of us. Um, but I think um, making sure that you understand from your, from your physician, you know, uh, does my treatment mean anything in the long run for my immune system and, and how well I'm going to fight off this COVID thing? I think that discussion is really important to have. Great, great advice. Um, Elizabeth, I bet you thought you were maybe going to get away with no questions, but um, not the case. <laughs> We've got a few coming your way. Um, this is, Elizabeth, a situation that many of our listeners are facing. Uh, we got a question from a gentleman who says, um, our clinic is not allowing visitors or family to accompany patients during doctor visits or treatments. How can I continue to advocate for his care when I can't be there? And I can't see what is happening. I could, um, you know, thank goodness neither of my parents have cancer. But if my mom could not go to my dad's medical appointments, we would all be in the dark. Sorry, dad. But um, so, I, you know, it's causing, this is causing a lot of anxiety, um, I think, Elizabeth, among um, our patients. So what do we say to that person? And how do they prepare knowing that they can't bring their loved one with them? Yeah, thanks, Kim. Um, I think that it's a really good question. And the theme that I'm seeing through all of these questions, um, they are really sort of backed up by anxiety and fear. And that's totally normal. Um, I think it's important to prepare yourself for this possibility. I saw a story on the Today Show this morning in which they were saying that um, pregnant women could not have partners in the delivery room with them. So while that's sort of extreme case, it's really scary. And so I'm not surprised to see this question. And I'm really glad that this person asked it. Um, again, it's scary for both of you, but it's important to remember that they're doing this because your doctor and the healthcare system have your best interests in mind. You heard from Dr. Kloje um, earlier about sort of um, making sure that, that you um, really understand what your doctor's thinking, what they're bringing, um, what they're suggesting for you. So have proactive conversations. Um, both with your loved one to determine how the appointment will go. So what's the appointment for? Is it just for routine blood work? Is it for chemotherapy? How long do you anticipate that it will last? Can you drive your loved one there and then just hang out in the car, maybe take a walk around the block? But before they go in, review the questions either one of you might have. So whether those pertain to COVID-19, which hopefully this podcast is helping to answer some of those, or just general questions that you have about cancer or treatment. 
write those questions down. And I can't say that strongly enough. Write those questions down because you will forget them or your loved one will forget them when they walk in the door. Have them take those questions with them into the appointment. Um, one thing that I think is really important right now is to try to maintain some sense of control during seemingly chaotic moments. And I would go even further and say this is not seemingly chaotic. This is a really complicated, um, chaotic moment. And so if you can be as prepared as possible, you can maintain some control over the situation. I also think that it's really important for your partner, in this case, I, I believe it's a man who's going in for his oncology appointment, acknowledge the anxiety and fear he's facing. As soon as he walks into that appointment with his provider, have him say, look, I'm really scared right now. This is different than any other appointment that I've had. I'm nervous about the coronavirus. I'm nervous without my partner here. I really need to be put at ease. So in the perfect world, the oncologist would help set them at ease. But I would also encourage that person to ask about a social worker or a patient navigator. They might be able to speak to them virtually. Um, if there is not that person in the clinic, contact the Cancer Support Community Helpline. We're open seven days a week. We are here to take their call. Um, and we all know that this is a really scary time right now. But the good news for the person who wrote in is that their loved one has an ex excellent advocate on their side. Yeah. Yeah, great advice. Um, I'm just going to mention the number for the helpline, Elizabeth, and I'm going to say it a couple times um, in the show today because we have a, a, we've added counselors and social workers, additional staff. We've added hours. As Elizabeth said, it's uh, now open uh, seven days a week, and you can talk to one of our well-trained, wonderful, compassionate professionals. Um, the number, if you want to grab a pen, is 888-793-9355. Again, it's 888 793-9355, and our folks are ready right now uh, to answer your questions, and I will mention that again later in the show so folks can uh, make sure that they have that information. Um, Dr. Markham, this next question is a tough one. Uh, a caregiver reached out to us and said, my husband received his pathology report today. The results said he has stage four cancer from an unknown primary, and it spread to his bones. The oncologist said he will not administer chemotherapy because of coronavirus. It'll make his immune system too vulnerable. However, I feel he's already vulnerable because of the cancer. Are other doctors and hospitals refusing chemo treatment um, to patients? This is a tough one, Dr. Markham. We're getting a lot of calls now from patients who are saying my, my treatment is postponed, my treatment is delayed. Um, in, in the instance of this patient, they don't want to start, um, start treatment. It sounds like this, um, this gentleman is fairly far advanced um, in his diagnosis, and uh, this is causing a great amount of of stress and anxiety. How are how are how should patients think about this? How um, I love you know Mike's suggestions around shared decision making. How are doctors um, approaching this? What what advice do you have? Oh, and this is a tough one for sure. Uh, we did hear about shared decision making earlier, and this is this is really a prime example of when it should be used. I don't think there's one right approach, and a lot may actually depend on the resources in the healthcare system at the current time. For example, in New York City right now, it's um, a bit of chaos and the uh, rates of COVID-19 there are higher than in perhaps, um, I'm going to make up something, but let's say Idaho or, or Utah. So it may be unique to the situation. However, that being said, I, I think this is really an opportunity, especially if you have a listener who is going in to discuss a, a new cancer treatment. Um, to, to figure out what are the risks of treating 
And then what are the risks of not treating right now? And sometimes it is actually okay to wait. Maybe there are other things that could be done to help relieve symptoms from cancer, such as pain control or medications to strengthen the bones. Um, but maybe it really is the right decision to start treatment. This is really only something that people can um, uh, feel comfortable about after having a conversation with their treating oncologist. I'll tell you just anecdotally, I met with a couple of patients this week who needed to start chemotherapy. And one of them, we're waiting a couple of weeks. And the other one, mm -hmm. we're going to get started right away. And each circumstance mm -hmm. was a little different. But that those discussions involved a real explanation of the risks of both, of waiting versus starting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good advice. And even just to hear about your own situation, you know, frontline mm -hmm. treating patients and you're dealing with these decisions every day and how each That's is right. very personal and very individualized. Um, I want to ask you, Elizabeth, we certainly know that even under normal circumstances, the cost of cancer care is a concern, a burden for many patients and their loved ones. We talk about this new phrase that we use called financial toxicity that sometimes, uh, you know, the financial burden can be another side effect of getting cancer. Um, and for many folks now, we're seeing these workplace closures mean that wages, maybe lost benefits might be down at risk. Um, our listener asks, are there any funds uh, available for cancer patients uh, due to coronavirus? And I know, Elizabeth, we're setting up special resources on our website, and we've got a counselor on the, the helpline. But tell us what we're learning, and, and maybe you can also tell patients where they can find some of this information as it becomes available on an ongoing basis. Sure. Thanks, Kim. And, and I agree. I'm going to say the link a few times. We've set up this webpage at www.cancersupportcommunity.org forward slash coronavirus. And that's where you can find all of our information, including what's going on in terms of policy right now. So this is a question that we're hearing a lot. Um, not only are people concerned about time off from work, lost wages, but people have kids home from school. People, there's a variety of reasons why people are having to miss work. And so there's just a ton going on in terms of policy. So I'm going to break it down into a few buckets. Um, and then again, I encourage people to look at our webpage so they can see really the ins and outs and have those, those detailed questions answered. So Congress has passed two bills so far, and they're working on a third. In fact, I have the TV on mute waiting to see if they are passing the third as we speak. So we may hear it first um, <laughs> if it happens while we're on this podcast. But um, so far, Congress has been focused on speeding up the science to find a vaccine, working to ensure access to COVID-19 testing, helping to relieve the burden on small businesses, and helping individuals. And that's really where I want to focus. So for people who need to take sick leave, those who are quarantined, so say you're told to shelter in place, or those who must take work leave to care for others, there is funding to help make up for lost wages. However, there are gaps in this policy, so it's incredibly important to read the details to understand if you qualify. So again, I will encourage folks to go to our webpage, cancersupportcommunity.org forward slash coronavirus, to see the link to government resources. There have also been, um, excuse me, there has also been enhanced funding for unemployment insurance. Um, we've heard from a few patients that they've been laid off. I have a few colleagues at organizations that have been laid off due to the, um, the economic impact of coronavirus. So if you have lost your job, you should also check with your state unemployment insurance program to see what benefits are available. And this information is also on our webpage. 
And finally, based on what happens in this third package that is currently being negotiated in the U.S. Senate, and we may hear as early as tonight that it has passed the Senate, it is highly likely that individuals under a specific salary range, and I'm not going to give that out because we don't know exactly what that's going yeah. to be yet. Yeah. Um, so it'll be a specific salary range and a specific check amount. Those folks are going to receive a check. And so those details are still being worked out, but that's really important because for folks who are struggling right now to make ends meet, you may be getting a check in the mail as early as April. So stay tuned, go to our webpage, and we'll keep providing updates on that. Great. And will we, will we provide information on COBRA as well, Elizabeth, so people are aware of that and understand about uh, the opportunity, maybe if they lose their job, to continue to buy coverage? Certainly. So it's really important, Kim, to talk about COBRA, the ways to extend your employer insurance. Um, it can be a little expensive, but we'll make sure yeah. that we post yeah. that on the webpage. Great. Excellent. Excellent. I think folks should definitely know about that option. And I know it can be expensive in a difficult time, but it may be important for, uh, it may be the most, you know, most available option for continuing um, uh, coverage. Elizabeth, I want to stay with you for a minute. And again, we're getting a lot of questions about folks really struggling with healing these feelings of isolation. Um, uh, one of our counselors on the helpline wrote to me about a call that she received. She said a caller's husband died a few weeks ago, and she's been re relying on the support of her friends and extended family members, um, but they can't visit due to social distancing, fears of COVID-19. Um, she's feeling intense grief and, and, and isolation. She called us to just talk to somebody and get some advice, but uh, I know a lot of folks are really struggling uh, with this uh, separation, but certainly the idea that you need that support in, in times of, of particular need through a loss, through a cancer diagnosis. So how can we help those folks? It's a really important question and one that I think, um, like you, Kim, I think this will resonate with a lot of people. So it's important to understand that grief and bereavement do not pause during a crisis. It doesn't matter if it's the COVID crisis. It doesn't matter what's going on. If, if you're dealing with grief and bereavement, it's not just going to magically stop so you can focus on something else. In fact, it's likely going to become more intense because people might be scared, anxious, and for this person, they no longer have their main social support person. So I want to say that these are totally normal emotions, and the good part is that many resources exist to help. So I'm going to plug the CSC helpline again, open seven days a week. Those are trained professionals, um, social workers, others who can provide feedback. Our affiliate network, so our 50 affiliates across the country, have also pivoted to offer their services virtually. So if you feel like you don't have a strong social support network, you could hop onto a support group if you are used to going to an affiliate. Um, our digital platform, My Lifeline, is also available 24-7, and you can connect with others, share what you're feeling. Um, but I, I really want to make a point, and I think this is incredibly important, um, although it might sound silly, but we keep using this term social distancing, and I have to tell you that I despise it. I think it is so unfortunate. It is physical distancing. It is not social distancing. And I completely agree with Dr. Markham. Keep your six feet. Imagine a tall man laying down the, between you and the next person. Don't get closer. But socially, you should and you can connect with people. So call them. Text them. Write them. I've been writing cards and sending them in the mail. Hop on electronic platforms like FaceTime or Skype or Zoom. If you are struggling, let people know so they can support you. Don't just assume that people won't be able to help you. So if you don't feel like you have a personal support network, we are here to help. And um, even when you feel completely alone, just know that you absolutely are not. 
great. Elizabeth, thank you. I appreciate all of the good advice. Um, and and uh, again, we'll continue to direct folks to resources that can help with all of these issues. Um, Dr. Markham, I want to pivot a little bit to the caregiver. I mean, at the cancer support community, we care for the patient and the caregiver equally. Um, we, we care for all people who are impacted by cancer, and we know that, that our caregivers are, are uh, very impacted by, by cancer diagnosis. I'm going to read a couple different questions that came in, and maybe we can address these, uh, some of these caregiver concerns. Um, if we're not sick, uh, do I need to stay six feet away from people in my own home? That's a tricky one. Um, I want to, uh, this is another one that came up from several people. Um, I receive, uh, I receive care from a visiting nurse, uh, or some folks have other, you know, at home services, along with friends and loved ones bringing pots of soup and lasagna. Is it safe for another person to come over and care for me or care for both of us if we're both seniors and getting some of that, uh, some of that care? And then also this question about what do I do if my, if my, if I have cancer and my caregiver get sick, do, you know, can I drive them to the, to the hospital? Okay, you know, what, what should I be doing? So a lot of caregiver concerns, Dr. Markham, I'd appreciate any advice for, uh, for our wonderful caregivers. These are definitely tough questions and uh, very real scenarios. Um, uh, let's go back to the first one about uh, staying six feet away from people in your own home. I think that if you are um, uh, not sick, if you've not been diagnosed with COVID-19 and you've not gotten off a cruise ship or traveled um, you know, out of your area, then you are likely very close to the folks in your home and it's reasonable to stay that way. I think it's certainly difficult to, to separate yourself from the people you love, especially physically yeah. when you're in the same space. Um, uh, if you are sick though, that's a different story. And I think um, that's an area where certainly uh, separating, uh, unfortunately, should be done in order to protect the person you're living with. Um, I think that uh, this sort of gets to what do I do if my caregiver gets sick question. Yeah. Um, so if you are a patient with, with cancer and your caregiver gets sick, that is really a real dilemma. Um, I think we all do the best we can. And that's my very honest answer. We're all, we all should do the best we can in these scenarios. Clearly, if you need to take care of your caregiver, um, then let the roles reverse and do what you need to do. Practice good hand washing, use hand sanitizer if you don't have access to soap and water and you happen to have access, but also rely on the physician to help. You know, give the, give the clinic a call. Um, there may be some resources that the clinic can provide or guidance that the clinic can give. I think before... Um, or maybe, you know, if you haven't done it already, it's a really good time to make a list of people who you can reach out to for help when you need it, whether it's friends or families or neighbors or community resources. And it may be that you need help compiling this list. I would bet somebody um, at this organization, organization can certainly help. It sounds like a wonderful resource. But I do think it's important to sort of have a list of people who could help if for whatever reason your caregiver gets yeah. sick or you get sick and can't then care for your loved one. Now, the yeah, issue of having, having people who bring things over to you, um, I, uh, I think that's uh, just a beautiful thing. And we certainly don't want to turn people away. 
However, this might be an instance where you need to do a sort of a drop off at the door and then speak to each other mm -hmm. through the window or schedule a FaceTime call afterwards or, or get on Facebook yeah. and do a video chat through, through Facebook. It really yeah. is best to, um, to keep a distance, especially in this time. And, you know, the real reason for that is because people can be asymptomatic and have the virus, you just don't know. You just don't know if your lovely, well-intentioned yeah. neighbor who is bringing you a pan of lasagna, unfortunately yeah. might have it, or you might have it yeah. and then give it to your friend. And I'll use an anecdote right. um, with my 16-year-old daughter, which is not quite the same thing, but she really wanted to have a friend over and really misses her yeah. and her friends right now because she's out of school. And I had to scare her a little bit and let her know that, you know, the real concern is what if we have it and then we give this to your friend, Laura, and then Laura gives it to her yeah. parents and to her grandparents who really can't, right. um, uh, would have a, a higher risk of complications. So we don't want to inadvertently hurt people we love. That's right. That's right. And we're all struggling with those things. I mean, I, I want to go visit, you know, my parents, but they're in a couple of those you know, at-risk categories, and um, they're both knock on wood. Yes. You know, they're well right now, and so why rock the boat, you know? And, and they're, they might be the, you know, two most social people on the planet, so they're really <laughs> having a tough time, but I'm, I'm glad they have each other anyway, uh, you know, to keep each other company, so that's, um, so that's good. Um, Dr. Closure, I want to continue for a minute with this, if you'll jump in on this theme of, 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 of caregivers. I, I just want to mention also, your point, Dr. Markham, about ways to, to direct people to stay connected. We have also another great resource, a cancer support community called My Lifeline. And it's basically you can set up your own sort of personalized website as a patient and invite people to join in. And you can share pictures and people can share pictures. You can set up the calendar if you want somebody to leave that casserole on the porch. Um, it's really ways to get your community connected and keep everybody up to date on what's going on with you because you know, I think folks do have some extra thought and care if you're dealing with cancer right now and want to find ways to help and engage. And this is my lifeline tool um, is a way that you can set up that community and you can give some people advice on how you would like for them to engage with you and support you. Um, but uh, let's keep going, Dr. Kolodzie, with some of these caregiver questions. Here's one that came in and any, again, tips that you want to add for our caregivers. Um, this question specific to this caller's personal situation, but I think it is one. That the caregivers are sharing with us. The caller's mom was scheduled to travel from Vermont to Connecticut for cancer treatment, and she had planned on staying with him with her son. He was wondering if he needed to find an alternate place for her to stay so as not to put his mom at risk. Um, the counselor who shared the story with me told me that a lot, we're getting a lot of caregiver calls, you know, about people being concerned about how they expose their loved ones um, to, to COVID-19. So, Mike, what, what suggestions and guidance do you have on that? So I don't mean to sound heartless, but I would say stay home, mom. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, you're safer yeah. at home. Um, I think, you know, Dr. Markham's suggestion that you start thinking about what your network of support looks like and and yeah. uh, alternate caregivers is an absolutely excellent one. Um, you know, heaven forbid uh, a caregiver become ill or to even test positive um, and not be ill and, and really need to quarantine and not have exposure, um, it, it could create a real crisis. And what we want to do is avoid those crisis situations. Um, I think, you know, um, if, the, if the mother is of otherwise good health, um, uh, if the patient is of otherwise good health and don't have any other 
significant risk factors. I, I don't think there's an issue with uh, being a, a caregiver during the course of active therapy. But uh-huh. again, it's it, it all comes down to sort of the risk benefit. Um, if it was my mom, I'd definitely tell her to stay home. <laughs> I love my mom, but uh, but honestly, um, I don't I don't want her to be in this situation where she's right. exposed in any way, shape, or form to right. uh, an increased risk. So I, it's just you know it's it's it's, it's common yeah. sense kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. Um, uh, all other things being equal, um, yeah. if she's of good health and and you're you know yeah. not receiving particularly intense therapy, there's probably no problem with it. Yeah. You know, I'll mention, um, you know, Mike, another resource that we have and, you know, has its pluses and minuses, but um, we have a national partnership with Airbnb. And so if there really was a concern and a patient needs to travel, um, we have housing solutions for them and they can request a house yeah. where nobody, you know, where they have the house to themselves and nobody else is there. They can bring some wipes and, you know, do what they need to do. But we do have that housing solution available. If folks call our helpline, um, they can request housing um, if they're traveling for care. And that's completely free for patients who qualify. So I'm going to shout out our helpline number again so folks have it. It's 888-793-9355. Um, guys, we're getting to the end of our show. This has been an amazing conversation. We can keep going um, and going. And we're going to have uh, additional shows as time goes on and as we get more questions in. But I'd just like to, like to ask each of you to just share a word of advice, a word of inspiration, maybe a positive story that you heard or something that touched you or uh, for, for our listeners as we um, come to the end of the show. And Dr. Kloge, I'm going to, I'm going to start with you. Final thoughts for our listeners. Yes, very briefly. Um, I'm, I'm a silver lining kind of guy, uh, as you know, and I think there's an incredible silver lining here. And and that is that I think it's going to improve the dialogue between patients and their physicians. It's going to partially improve it because we're going to have to really seriously think about what shared decision make, um, uh, shared decision making looks like. But it's also, we're seeing this emergence of telemedicine, for example, and remote yes. patient monitoring. The, you know, for years we've, we've thought, oh, we're going to build patient portals and all this stuff. They haven't worked worth a darn. There, here's a great opportunity for us to get the patient closer to the care team. And I'm just super excited about that. I, I like that. I like the silver lining. I'm, I think we're all looking for those these days as well. Um, Dr. Markham. I, you know, I think it's just really important that people stay connected, even though we have to be physically distant. As Elizabeth pointed out, staying connected is really important, and not just with others, but with ourselves as well. You know, it's a very um, anxiety-provoking time for everyone, and I think everyone, uh, healthcare providers included, are really on edge. It's a great idea if you take this opportunity, some opportunity in the day as you're, as you're staying home and protecting yourself to find something that brings you peace and joy, whether it's sitting and watching birds at the bird feeder, or taking a time to write in a journal, or maybe practicing yoga through a YouTube video. I think finding some way to connect to yourself and give yourself a few minutes of peace and, and quiet time to really reflect on the fact that we will come out of this. There will be the next uh, tomorrow when we're, this is all in the history books. We just have to get yes. there. Absolutely. And we will, we will get there to, together and, you know, through the triumph of the human spirit for sure. Um, uh, Elizabeth, why don't you uh, bring us to the finish line here? Sure. Yeah, I'm going to take a tenant from the profession of social work. We're a very strength-based perspective. So like Mike, I want to end on a high note. 
Um, people who have lived through cancer or who are a caregiver of someone with cancer have extraordinary grit. They have been tested and proven time and again that they're strong, they're brave in the face of adversity. And I just encourage people to tap into those resources of perseverance um, and be kind to yourself, be kind to others. I've been amazed at what I've seen in terms of the generosity, the kindness, how lovely people have been throughout all of this. And I encourage people to keep that up. It's a hard time, but um, I think we will see another day and, and it'll be a better day. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, thanks to all of you. I just want to remind our listeners of the many, many resources that we have and we're enhancing our resources every day because we know this is a trying time um, at the cancer support community. Uh, you can visit our website, cancersupportcommunity.org. There's a host of resources. If you want to get straight to those coronavirus resources, www.cancersupportcommunity.org slash coronavirus. Uh, that'll take you there. We've had a ton of traffic to that site and we're updating it daily. And I thank my team at CSC for doing that. I also want to thank all of our wonderful counselors answering that helpline right now. Grab a pen because that phone number is 888-793-9355. That's our cancer support helpline. It's answered by a wonderful team of people. You can call seven days a week, any kind of cancer. If you're in active treatment, if you're a survivor, if you're a caregiver, please call us. Let us know how we can help. If uh, we don't know the answer, we're going to run that answer down for you and get you uh, uh, and get you what you need. I really appreciate you joining today. I also want to remind folks they can uh, join, they can set up their own personal site on My Lifeline. If they go to cancersupportcommunity.org, you'll learn about our My Lifeline platform. You can set up your site to get connected uh, to, to friends and family and really talk about how uh, you need support right now and how you can activate your own personal network to be there uh, side by side with you, even if not physically. Um, so please keep in touch with us. Let us know how we can help. I appreciate uh, my guests today. I appreciate everyone who's stepping up to help all those who are being impacted by this um, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo from the Cancer Support Community. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tebaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.